Hello, and welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm Jordan Roush. I'm Jeremy Roush. I like to think of it as, as I bring the history and Jeremy brings the dad jokes. Absolutely. That's the startup. <laughs> it's the basis for this podcast. So we this will come out right after Christmas, so Merry Christmas. I hope everybody had a great holiday. Great holiday. And I hope everybody has a good new year. Happy New Year coming mm-hmm. up. If you have any 2020. If you have any plans for the new year, the new decade, we'd love to hear about them. So give us a shout out. Do you have any resolutions yet? So I started this one 2 years ago. It was uh, switching to coffee versus energy drinks, black coffee. And I've kind of fallen off that bandwagon. I did really good first year. You did. And then this year, I've been drinking lots of energy drinks. So I'd like to switch back to black coffee, but the energy drinks are just so convenient because <laughs> I'm not a big fan of hot. So. Oh, yeah. We did. That's why we have the cold brew coffee maker yeah, gotta that, get that up and running yeah, again yeah we gotta start doing that again what about you i don't know i'm thinking that i want to do another half marathon i think i need to set that goal for myself yeah like a deadline yeah because if i'm just like oh i just want to run then i just have no motivation to yeah. go like any further than two miles you should i think you should do a half marathon you should do a 5k and a half marathon and the half the first half marathon and a second half marathon like three goals. Oh. So that way, like, you can set a 5K goal to hold yourself accountable. Anyways, I'd be down Good for idea. that. Yeah, I'd be down do for that. that together. Yeah. I like it. So what would you describe if you hear, what is your description when you hear the word snake oil? What do you, what, what do you think of? I think of shady salesmen peddling these garbage uh elixirs out of wagons yeah yeah wagon and, well and i feel like especially in old western movies the snake oil salesman was a pretty greasy guy pretty greasy and like a pretty staple character oh yeah in a lot of those movies oh, and yeah. shows even if his only bit was just being a what do they what do they call the this is a minor character no not even a saying. minor character but just like an extra. Uh, just an extra. Yes. Always an extra. Never 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 really has a good bit other than snake oils, catch a snake oils. Yeah. So starting in the early nineteenth century, maritime trade between the United States and China led to a wave of Chinese immigrants to America. The first wave arrived in eighteen fifteen, and by eighteen fifty there was around 25,000 Chinese immigrants in the United States. By 1882, around 300,000 Chinese had come to the United States and made up a tenth of the Californian population. Most of these immigrants came from the Taishan and Zhongshan regions. And I apologize for my I Chinese. Like that was pretty good that time. Well, I mean, it sounds it sounds okay, and yeah. I feel confident, but I know that it's probably very wrong. <laughs> Uh, and the Guangdong province, and they were mostly made up of peasants, farmers, and craftsmen, working, hoping to earn enough money in America to send back home to their families yes. back in China. Thank you, Western Union. 
<laughs> this was the height of the California gold rush, so many immigrants worked in the mines in Northern California. Other Chinese immigrants took jobs as farmhands, garment industry jobs, and railroad labor jobs for the Central Pacific and Transcontinental Railroads. Right. Many of the immigrants would book their passage from China to the United States on ships with the Pacific Mail Steamship Company and the Occidental and Oriental Steamship Company. The money to buy their tickets was usually borrowed from relatives or commercial lenders in China. If they still couldn't come up with enough money, American employers would also send hiring agencies to China and would offer to pay for passage to America. For the first 400 hours free. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The money that was advanced by the agency to cover the cost of the ticket would then have to be paid back by wages earned by the laborer when they arrived in America, which created an indentured service system. Ah. Especially because they were paid very low wages. Right. Especially the Chinese immigrants. Right. You know, Boise has a rich history of that. And Idaho in general. Yes, we do. (laughs) You've heard about the underground tunnels. No. In Garden City. I do not know anything about those. Yeah, that's a thing. Is that? (laughs) That's like, that's where Chindin is the road. Right. That they're like, because of. I don't know what it means, but okay, it's based. So why did they build underground tunnels? I guess you just know that there's underground tunnels, and it has something to do with Chinese immigrants, right? Okay, it escapes me right now the exact reason, but okay. So because many of these immigrants were desperate to pay off these loans and send money back home to their families in China, and then also you know make enough to survive, survive, yeah. Many Chinese accepted jobs with reduced wages, longer hours, and fewer days off than were accepted by European immigrants. The railroad companies could cut their labor costs down by a third by hiring Chinese Americans versus European Americans because the railroads wouldn't pay for the Chinese board or lodging. Chinese Americans were hired to do the most back-breaking and dangerous parts of building the railroad. Charles Crocker, the manager of the Central Pacific Railroad, set records for laying track and finishing his project seven years ahead of the government's deadline. Wow. And he did that by working his laborers well past the point of exhaustion. Yeah. What was that show that we watched about the railroad? Do you you remember? Yeah. Do you remember what it was called? Nope. Okay. (laughs) Well, never mind. (laughs) I remember it was really interesting. Yeah, where they were, like, basically making people work these crazy hours and do all these crazy things mm-hmm. to try to beat the other railroad and wasn't beat deadlines. Centered, wasn't it centered around, like, the LDS church as well? There, like that, the formation. That was a couple seasons of it. Yeah. Yeah. So if anybody remembers what that was called, Tag please, us. Please, write, please write in. could probably Google it pretty easily. I'm sure but. we can. <laughs> We don't want to do the work. Make our listeners do all the work for us. Well, some of it at least. Yeah. So the railroad uh, had to go through two mountain ranges, the Sierra Nevada and the Rocky Mountains. So tunnels had to be created through those mountains. The railroad decided to use the newly invented but very unstable nitroglycerin explosives in order to create these tunnels without losing much time. Hmm. Six laborers were killed just transporting the nitroglycerin to the blast site, not including how many laborers lost their lives when planned explosions actually went off. 
when a nitroglycerin explosion killed 15 people in the Wells Fargo office in San Francisco, the California legislature banned the transport of liquid nitroglycerin, so the Central Pacific had to find a new way to create tunnels. The Central Pacific then had Chinese laborers suspended from large baskets, and then they would place large amounts So the people in the baskets would place large amounts of black powder Mm -hmm. at the blast site, and then they would light the fuses, and then they were just waiting on the other people to pull them up really quick out of dangerous way before the explosion actually went off. Wow. So. so It's lit! (laughs) Go, 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 go! Pull, 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 pull! Yeah. Yeah. You really hope that the people you're working with are on their A-game that day. And like you. Yes. (laughs) Construction went through hot summers and very cold winters, and sometimes entire labor camps would be completely buried under avalanches. After a long, hard day at work, some of the Chinese laborers would use medicines they brought from China to ease their aching muscles and joints. One of these medicines was snake oil. Oh, really? Yes. Oil from the Chinese water snake, or the black-banded sea crate, has been used in traditional Chinese medicine for centuries as an anti-inflammatory to treat arthritis, bursitis, and other joint pains. Chinese water snake oil has a very high content of omega-3 fatty acids, and it appears to also help in lowering systolic blood pressure, improve cognitive function, reduce the risk of dementia, and relieve depression. Wow. The Chinese-Americans working on the railroad would rub the oil on their joints after a long day of hard work, and they would share it with their European-American co-workers, and word quickly spread across America of the healing powers of Chinese snake oil. Wow. It was basically kind of this cure-all for joint pain. Yeah. Which, especially back then, a large majority of the population was doing hard labor. Yeah, absolutely. You I know. mean, factory jobs and... yeah. So that was a huge thing if you just had an oil to rub on your joints. Because it was hard to get your hands on a Chinese water snake in America, Mm -hmm. many Americans made and sold their own snake oil that they made from rattlesnakes. They're like, oh yeah, we've got got our own snakes. It probably works the same. Soon after, Americans could then buy Tex Bailey's rattlesnake oil. Tex Allen's Rattlesnake Essential Oil Compound, which was recommended for rheumatic pains, back pain strains, sprains, bruises, sores, aching feet, stiff joints, sore muscles, throat irritation, headache, earache, and more. Everything. Some of the other rattlesnake oils that you could buy was Rattlesnake Bill's Liniment that was made from the fat of a real diamondback rattlesnake. The Great Yaki Snake Oil Liniment, Black Hawks Indian Liniment Oil, Monster Brand Snake Oil, and <laughs> Mac Mahan, the Rattlesnake Oil King's Liniment for Rheumatism and Qatar. I like the monster. Imagine it the same like... Same monster Brand yeah. Snake Oil. Yeah. The self-dubbed Rattlesnake King, Clark Stanley, published a 50-page booklet in 1897. The first half of the pamphlet was all about his life as a cowboy, while the last half was devoted to the wonders of snake oil. Cowboys were, like, the cool people in the late 1800s. People loved to read about the Old West. They would go to, like, shows where people would show off their cowboy skills, you know, like rodeos. Yeah. Well, it was cowboy skills, gunslinging skills. Gunslinging skills. They would, like, put on these, like... 
I don't want to call them plays, but, you know, like cowboys versus Indians kind of thing. So those were the cool people of the day. And Mm -hmm. so if somebody came out with a pamphlet about how they were a hard, tough cowboy, people read it and they picked it up. So people loved Clark Stanley's pamphlet. And Clark Stanley definitely looked like what you would imagine a cowboy to look like. He had a handlebar mustache, goatee. Broad-brimmed hat, boots, handkerchief, and jeans. Stanley would tell people that he was born in Abilene, Texas during the Civil War, and that he started cowboying around the age of 14. So, basically, everything about his life, nobody has been able to fact-check or prove. So, it could be true. It could all be baloney. If it is baloney, we have no really idea where Clark Stanley came from. He just appeared one day and said he was the rattlesnake king. (laughs) So, and this, so basically any information I say about his life just comes from his pamphlet. It's a big old asterisk. Yes. So in 1879, he went with some of his father's friends to Walpi, Arizona to see the snake dance of the Moki which is the tribe that is now known as the Hopi Indians. In his booklet, Stanley wrote, There I became acquainted with the medicine man of the Moki tribe, and as he liked the looks of my Colt's revolver and asked me to show him how it would shoot, I gave him an exhibition of my fancy shooting, which pleased him very much. He then asked me how I would like to stay there and live with him. I told him I would stay until the snake dance. So, after the snake dance, his father's friends left, but Stanley decided to stay and live with the Moki for two years and five months. So, like I said, who even knows if the he actually went to the tribe, mm-hmm. if they actually asked him to stay. Yeah. Nobody knows. Stanley wrote, I learned their language and dances and the secret of making their medicines. The medicine that interested me most was their snake oil medicine, as they called it. It is used for rheumatism, contracted cords, and all aches and pains. As I was thought a great deal of by the medicine man, he gave me the secret of making the snake oil medicine, which is now named Clark Stanley's Snake Oil Liniment. Snake oil is not a new discovery. It has been in use by the Mokis and other Indian tribes for many generations, and I have made an improvement on the original formula. And so, like I said before, snake oil comes from China. Originally, not not Native Americans. So this guy is already full of baloney. They might have. Sure. But like everything says like it's China because it's rattlesnake oil does not have same properties even close. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't doubt that, but I mean, it's not it's not a lie to call it snake oil. It is snake oil. It's it is snake oil. It is not the black. Crate, what do you call it? Water. The black banded crate. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I'm just saying that you can tell that this guy is baloney because I'm pretty sure by this time they're like, oh, we've been making snake oil from rattlesnake oil, so that sounds like a Native American thing to do. Yeah. You know, just one of those things. Stanley continued in his brochure to write about how he tried his snake oil on friends and neighbors back home, and that it worked so well that he decided to start manufacturing and selling it with unbounded success across the West and Southwest. In 1893, the World's Exhibition was held in Chicago. 25 million people attended the exhibition over the six months that it was open, 
and it was there that President Grover Cleveland threw an electric switch open, the Ferris wheel made its international debut, and Clark Stanley showed off his snake handling skills. So it's, you know, just kind of crazy, all these cool, great scientific Mm -hmm. discoveries are going on, and then there's Clark Stanley making snake snake oil. oil. A journalist at the exhibition interviewed Stanley, and he described his routine as, The audience sees me kill the snakes, draw out the oil, and put it into a glass dish. Then I walk down among them and show it to them. Then I go back, and here is a big glass jar, like you made orangeade in. Which I think maybe is like orange juice? Yeah. First I put the snake oil in, and then I put nine other oils in, which have previously been mixed in a can, so that they don't see all of what my formula is. I pour that in on top of the snake oil, turn the mixture around, and if it doesn't mix thoroughly, looks like looks a little cloudy, I stir it again. Then I let it set for just a moment, and it becomes clear. Stanley would sell the freshly made liniment along with snake oil liniment bottles that had been made beforehand and he would quickly sell out to the group that had just watched his demonstration. Stanley traveled across the United States, showing off his snakes and making snake oil right in front of people. A druggist from Boston is the one that talked Stanley into opening a manufacturing plant in Boston. A reporter from the Boston Transcript visited Stanley at his office, which was just a house filled with snakes. (laughs) Not really an office at all. Not really a manufacturing plant. Hmm. A quote from the article states, The snake man took the reporter up to his bedroom and opening a light wooden box with a wire window in the side, dove his hand into it with as much unconcern as if he were taking an egg out of a basket and brought it out again with a snake seven feet long writhing in it. Wow. (laughs) Can you imagine if you're that reporter? Just a big old... What the... (laughs) Yeah, just a big old... Yeah. Oh, here, check this one out. Especially with how much you hate snakes. Yeah. No, thank you. Stanley then pulled out... I have a healthy respect of snakes. You're scared of snakes. Well, I have a healthy respect. (laughs) I just remember that one time we were taking a walk and you saw like a squish snake on a (laughs) sidewalk and you like basically like almost threw me like into the road. Whatever. I did not. Maybe. (laughs) I was like, <laughs> jumping up on the curb, like grabbing like a, onto you, and you were like, what? It's, it's, a, it's a squished garden snake. No, oh, it was definitely a what? Bull snake. Okay, we only. But I didn't know that. We And we only have one type of venomous snake in Idaho, mm-hmm. and that's rattlesnakes. Are you sure? Yes, I am sure, because I did a Snakes of Idaho report. When in fifth grade or fourth grade or something, that was my science fair project. Hmm. But I have been bitten uh, by a bull snake before. Nat- so natural. Now you got all these people that get pet snakes and then they let them loose because they're like, oh, I can't take care of the snake. I'm going to let it true. go live free in the wild. Yeah, those people are the worst. Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. If you can't take care of a pet that you just, that you bought, first of all, When you buy a pet, you're making a life commitment to that pet, and it should be seen as such. Now, there are unforeseen circumstances where you have to get rid of a pet, but then you make sure that it goes to a very good home. Or you do what needs to be done. No. (laughs) We're not putting that out there. (laughs) Yes. 
But don't just let it it's out like in the, the wild. Goldf- it's like putting goldfish in the public ponds and stuff. Like, that's not a native fish. Like, no. don't put them in public waters. Like, be better off. You don't drown a goldfish, but, you know, letting them dry out. How would you, how would you, you're, you're saying that if people don't want goldfish anymore, they should just take them out of their bowls? Yeah. That's so sad. I mean, after they try to rehome them, I guess. But. And also, <laughs> what happened in your life that you can no longer have a goldfish? Hypothetical here. You know, you're, you have no place to judge people. You don't know. Sometimes situations happen. It's a goldfish. You can literally keep that in a glass of water and take that anywhere with you. Put or it in a mason clear- jar. You remember when we had that, that goldfish? Uh, in college that you got at the fair yeah and then i just put it in one of those clear plastic totes yeah, underneath the nightstand for months <laughs> i fed it like once like once a week yeah and i think sometimes it was like pizza crust or <laughs> i'm surprised the fish lasted that long yeah, that fish lasted forever that's the thing goldfish they're hardy yeah kind of yeah it depends but you can take them anywhere or did you just keep buying me a new goldfish? No, I did not. <laughs> I did not. You didn't want me to see it. But I think that my parents did that when I was little. I went through a lot of goldfish. Yeah. I mostly blame my sister because sometimes she would take them out to pet them. And then she'd put them back. And we'd be like, why are all its scales falling off? Yeah. And then she would also feed it uh, those red pepper flakes that you get in pizza boxes. Because yeah. she thought that was fish food. And that obviously... Red pepper flakes do not do well on little goldfish tummies. <laughs> they probably had the worst heartburn and then killed over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rest in peace, peanut butter and jelly. Those are three separate fish. Peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, peanut butter jelly. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't name one and. You know, I did not. I think I had several named Jelly. I think I just kept reusing that name. Okay. So he takes out two more snakes in front of the reporter. And he's just like, he pulls them out and then he kind of lets them go. And he's just letting them like wiggle around his body. Just wrap themselves. Yeah. Around his arms and stuff. And Stanley told the reporter that the bite of any one of these snakes is absolutely deadly. No, I am not the least afraid of being bitten. In fact, I have been bitten hundreds of times. Look here. And then Stanley showed the reporter his hands that were covered in tiny white scars all the way to his wrist. Wow. So Stanley went on to say that not all from are from poisonous snakes, but I have also been bitten by snakes which had their glands full of poison and meant business. The reason I am not dead is because I have what I believe is the only remedy for snake bite, and there is no question that it is a perfect one. So, I couldn't figure out what he had, or if he was just using his, I think he's talking about just using his snake oil on his snake bites. Yeah. But just so you know, snake oil doesn't... (laughs) Work like that? Doesn't work like that. Get that vein of it. Yeah, which wasn't a thing back then. He probably had just built up such a tolerance to it. That's what a lot of historians think is that he had just had a limited immunity built up which i've met people living in the backwoods of idaho that they've they're like oh yeah i've been bitten like five six ten times by rattlesnakes and i've never had to go to the hospital and i think some people are just 
Lucky. Lucky, <laughs> and then you get bit once or twice, and you start to build up an immunity <laughs> to it. But what are you doing that you've been bitten <laughs> ten times by a rattlesnake? You need to be more careful. Yeah. I get once. It's not like maybe you're texting. Twice. It's not like you're texting and hiking. Yeah. But like after the second time, I don't know, maybe be more careful. Maybe start wearing like boots and gloves. Mm-hmm. You'd think. You'd think. In 1901, Stanley moved his manufacturing from Boston, just the snake house, to a bigger plant in Providence, Rhode Island. A reporter writing about Stanley wrote, In covered pens may be seen thousands of snakes, fattened, ready to be killed for their oil. Clark Stanley says that the world is just beginning to realize the actual value of snake oil, and that there are hundreds of uses to which it might be applied that are not yet recognized. Stanley claimed to kill 3,000 snakes that previous year and 2,000 others at his snake farm in Texas because business was booming. Business is a booming. But can you imagine 5,000 snakes a year? That's a lot of snakes. It's a lot of snakes. And like, also it kind of creeps me out that he's probably breeding rattlesnakes. Yeah. I don't know, something about that seems yeah. really messed up. Yeah. He's like a, like a rattlesnake. What are the, like the puppy mills? Yeah. He's like a rattlesnake mill. Yeah. The, it just creeps me out that somebody in the community would have a, a snake mill like that. Yeah. Or, the, it's, or like, it's like, what happens if there's like a fire and all of the snakes get loose and they're just in Providence, Rhode Island? Yeah, it'd and, be the uh, number one worst place to live in America. Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about, I think, I want to say it was somewhere like Buell or somewhere in southern Idaho that the couple went to go buy a house and they were told that it had a snake problem mm-hmm. but the real estate agent was like oh like yeah it'd be all right it's fine it's not like really a big deal like there's snakes and then they got into it and there were snakes living in the walls yep. like their uh basement crawl space yeah. was completely filled with yeah. snakes yeah it was a hibernation yeah uh, i forget what they call it colony or something like that but yeah I think there's been a few places like that in yeah. Idaho that people have found in their homes. So, And then they basically just had to take it as a loss. Yep, because, yeah, you can't, nobody's going to buy your snake house. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they, they did. Yeah. They bought a snake house. <laughs> yeah. Just try your luck with but the market. But I guess they just weren't trying to be as skeezy as yeah. the other sellers. Or... Yeah. The label on his snake oil bottles, as well as the booklet that accompanied the bottle, Claimed the oil could be used for hundreds of uses, stating, For rheumatism, neuralgia, sciatica, lame back, contracted muscles, sprains, swellings, frostbites, chillblains, bruises, sore throat, bites of animals, insects, and reptiles, good for man and beast. A liniment that penetrates muscle, membrane, and tissue to the very bone itself, and banishing pain with a power that has astonished the medical profession. <laughs> there were two figures that illustrated how to use the oil to cure partial paralysis of the arms. It was basically like, dip your arm in snake oil and your arm won't be paralyzed anymore. And another figure that showed how to bathe the head for neuralgia, headache, and tic dolero. Uh, if you were bitten by an animal, insect, or reptile, you are instructed to apply the oil as soon as possible. The oil kills the poison, relieves the pain, reduces the swelling, and heals the wound. Ah, yes. It does it all. In 1906, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, 
This legislation would prevent the manufacture, sale, or transportation of adulterated or misbranded or poisonous or deleterious foods, drugs, or medicines, and liquors. This created a few problems for Stanley's snake oil. Firstly, the medical claims that he made for his oil would be far-fetched for even Chinese water snake oil that actually works, but they are outrageous for rattlesnake oil, which contains only a third of the omega fatty acids that Chinese water snake oil does. Secondly, Clark Stanley's snake oil that he manufactured didn't contain even one drop of snake oil. In 1917, Federal investigators seized a shipment of Stanley snake oil. Analysis of a sample by the Bureau of Chemistry found that the oil was mostly comprised of a light mineral oil mixed with about 1% of fatty oil, which was probably beef fat, capsicum, or red pepper, Hmm. and possibly a trace of camphor or turpentine. Stanley was fined $20, which is about $429 today, for misbranding the oil and fraudulently representing as a remedy for all pains and illnesses. Stanley did not dispute the charges because Mm -hmm. he was making bank. Like, why wouldn't he just pay the $20? Yeah, pay the fine and move on. So it was around this time that the term snake oil started to become synonymous with fraud. Yeah. And, And Yeah. And Stephen, because people were catching on that yeah. rattlesnake oil didn't do property, anything. Yeah, yeah. And Stephen Vincent Benet's 1927 poem, John Brown's Body, the poet talks about crooked creatures of a thousand dubious trades, sellers of snake oil, balm, and lucky rings. Other tonics that were advised to cure wide ah, varieties. Tonic, that was the word tonics. I was thinking. Yeah, tonics. Other tonics that were advertised to cure wide varieties of ailments that were found to be false medicine, began to be referred to as snake oil as well. The term has evolved to mean a product or policy of little real worth or value that is promoted as the solution to a problem. So snake oil is just synonymous with... With anything that's being sold or pushed as a solution to a problem that doesn't actually work. Right. In 2013, Senator Mitch McConnell sent (laughs) out a campaign mailer in which he called his opponent in the Republican primary, Matt Bevin, a snake oil salesman. (laughs) At a rally during the 2012 presidential race, President Obama referred to Romney's tax plan as trickle-down snake oil. (laughs) And in 2008, this is a long one, the Natural Resources Defense Council Action Fund took out full-page ads in the Washington Post calling President George W. Bush's plan to drill for oil and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, 100% snake oil. But basically, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that snake oil started out as it works in China for achy joints, and it has come a long way. And now it's synonymous with fraud misrepresentation. Yes. Ah, so I wasn't too far off. Yeah. I was thinking more of tonics. Right. But, yeah, snake oil. But, you know, I feel like there's things that are sold today that are, like, the present-day version of snake snake oil. oil. Yeah. Yep. I agree. So, I won't get into it. (coughs) Essential oils. But. (laughs) Hey. I I get it. Like, peppermint can help your head feel better. But some people put way too much weight into essential oils. (laughs) Way too much. Yep. 
Come, <laughs> come fight me. <laughs> My sources for this story are Chinese in the Post-Civil War South, A People Without History by Lucy M. Cohen. The Chinese American Heritage by David M. Brownstone. The Use of Black Powder Nitroglycerin on the Transcontinental Railroad from the Transcontinental Railroad Resources from the Linda Hall Library. The Army of Canton in the High Sierra by Alexander Saxton. The History of Snake Oil by Andrew Haynes in the Pharmaceutical Journal. The Rattlesnake King, an excerpt from Natural Causes, Death, Flies, and Politics in America's Vitamin and Herbal Supplement Industry by Dan Hurley, and A History of Snake Oil Salesmen by Lakshmi Gandhi. Hmm. That was so, a good one. Yeah. And I didn't know how to get it in, but basically a lot of it too was how snake oil got this way is that basically... European Americans saw that Chinese Americans had something that worked and they basically stole it and made it worse. <laughs> Especially, and made a bunch of money out of it. And it's really, it is really sad to see how badly Chinese Americans were treated. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, especially you look back into the gold rush. Um, like you were saying, they were used as as the heavy lifters and the laborers because they were thought of as less than others. Right, is... and then because they were paid so little compared to European Americans and were working longer hours, mm-hmm. it was kind of, you know, the old song of dance of these immigrants are taking our jobs. That's right. why we uh that's why we're unemployed right. and so they were looked down even more right. and yeah, Mistreated. the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And I think I talk about Could it. Could you in... imagine what like what it would have been like if if they had been able to successfully bulk manufacture the real snake oil. Right. And got it out on the market. Oh, and that was the problem, though, is that nobody was bringing Chinese water snakes over to well, America. That's probably a good thing, because <laughs> we probably, probably for have the a, best. <laughs> we'd probably have an invasive species that existed. Because that always happens over right, here. Right, Well, it happens everywhere. Right. But I was going to say, if you go back and listen to episode two gas bath riots yeah i talk about how america the first people that we actually put bans on immigrating to the united states was was chinese Chinese. yeah yeah like obviously we've had we've had i don't know issues we've had um issues with the at the mexican border with mexican immigrants america has created issues i don't know how to say that yeah we've had tensions that's how i want to say it there's been tensions at the mexican border for a long time but we actually uh preferred mexican immigrants over chinese immigrants for a long time especially in the beginning so um go listen to that episode if you haven't yet um it's an interesting one yeah i think so at least oh then you had a Correction, we'll go to Correction Corner for last week's episode, the eggnog riot episode, about the writ of habeas corpus. No, that was Alcatraz May Day, the Indians of London. that's right. So, thanks to one of our avid listeners. Yeah, Correction Corner for episode nine, then. So, habeas corpus, and I'm just going to read the, uh, the bit that I got from our listener in Italy. 
Uh, habeas corpus is a writ for release due to unlawful detention. Uh, this was uh, in regards to um, I think Civil it was... War uh, Confederate sympathizers being uh, imprisoned on Alcatraz. Right. So uh, it obviously concerns a lack of due process, but it is the method of release for prisoners and not necessarily related to due process itself. Um, so you uh, respondent, which is typically a prison official, has to show that the detention is justified. Uh, Lincoln used it as a way to not only silence Confederate-leaning politicians in the Maryland legislature, but to block peacenik types in the North who did not want to go to war with the South. They blew up train lines and stuff like that to prevent troop movements. So, writ of habeas corpus is typically used, you know, it's used by detention individuals who've been detained. So, right there you there you have there it. You Thanks go. for the update. Thank you. Like we said before, any corrections that you have, please email us. Um, go to our website, and we have at americathebazaar.com, and we have a contact us section. We'd also love to hear if you have ideas for new or more, episodes. Or more information about a topic that yes, you found interesting. absolutely. Or if you even have family stories family history about some of the stories we have been telling. We'd love to hear those and we'd love to give you a shout out and read some of those during a future episode. Jeremy and I, we just got the joggers off of our website store. Super comfy. They're so soft. I'm yeah. so comfortable right yeah. now. Yeah. So, and they're a, they're a good weight too. So they're, they're, they got a little bit of weight to them so they'll keep you warm this winter yeah they're nice and thick they're good quality they're so soft so go check out our store we have some cool things like that in there for you to check out anything else on your end that you can think of you always do this to me well i just want to give you a chance (laughs) no i don't have anything okay (laughs) so until next time stay stay weird weird, america. america